0: chapter 1 part 5 of the american language this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by devora allen the american language by h l minkin chapter 1 by way of introduction part 5 the characters of american The characters chiefly noted in American speech by all who have discussed it are, first, its general uniformity throughout the country, so that dialects, properly speaking, are confined to recent immigrants, to the native whites of a few isolated areas, and to the Negroes of the South, and secondly, its impatient disdain of rule and precedent, and hence its large capacity, distinctly greater than that of the English of England, for taking in new words and phrases and for manufacturing new locutions out of its own materials. The first of these characters has struck every observer, native and foreign. In place of the local dialects of other countries, we have a general Volkssprache for the whole nation, and if it is conditioned at all, it is only by minor differences in pronunciation and by the linguistic struggles of various groups of newcomers. The speech of the United States, said Gilbert M. Tucker, is quite unlike that of Great Britain, in the important particular that here we have no dialects. We all, said Mr. Taft during his presidency, speak the same language and have the same ideas. Manners, morals, and political views, said the New York world, commenting upon this dictum, have all undergone a standardization which is one of the remarkable aspects of American evolution. Perhaps it is in the uniformity of language that this development has been most noteworthy. Outside of the Tennessee mountains and the back country of New England, there is no true dialect. While we have, or have had, single counties as large as Great Britain, says another American observer, and in some of our states England could be lost, there is practically no difference between the American spoken in our 4,039,000 square miles of territory, except as spoken by foreigners. We, assembled here, would be perfectly understood by delegates from Texas, Maine, Minnesota, Louisiana, or Alaska, or from whatever walk of life they might come. We can go to any of the 75,000 post offices in this country and be entirely sure we will be understood, whether we want to buy a stamp or borrow a match. From Portland, Maine, to Portland, Oregon, agrees an English critic, no trace of a distinct dialect is to be found. The man from Maine, even though he may be of inferior education and limited capacity, can completely understand the man from Oregon." No other country can show such linguistic solidarity, nor any approach to it. Not even Canada, for there a large part of the population resists learning English altogether. The little Russian of the Ukraine is unintelligible to the citizen of Petrograd. The northern Italian can scarcely follow a conversation in Sicilian. The low German from Hamburg is a foreigner in Munich. The Breton flounders in Gascony. Even in the United Kingdom there are wide divergences. When we remember, says the New International Encyclopedia, that the dialects of the counties in England have marked differences, so marked indeed that it may be doubted whether a Lancashire miner and a Lincolnshire farmer could understand each other, we may well be proud that our vast country has, strictly speaking, only one language. This uniformity was noted by the earliest observers. Pickering called attention to it in the preface to his vocabulary and ascribed it, no doubt accurately, to the restlessness of the Americans, their inheritance of the immigrant spirit, the frequent removals of people from one part of our country to another. It is especially marked in vocabulary and grammatical forms, the foundation stones of a living speech. There may be slight differences in pronunciation and intonation, a southern softness, a Yankee drawl, a western burr, but in the words they use and the way they use them, all Americans, even the least tutored, follow the same line. One observes, of course, a polite speech and a common speech, but the common speech is everywhere the same, and its uniform vagaries take the place of the dialectic variations of other lands. A Boston streetcar conductor could go to work in Chicago, San Francisco, or New Orleans without running the slightest risk of misunderstanding his new fares. Once he had picked up half a dozen localisms, he would be, to all linguistic intents and purposes, fully naturalized. Of the intrinsic differences that separate American from English, the chief have their roots in the obvious disparity between the environment and traditions of the American people since the 17th century and those of the English. The latter have lived under a stable social order, and it has impressed upon their souls their characteristic respect for what is customary and of good report. Until the war brought chaos to their institutions, their whole lives were regulated, perhaps more than those of any other people save the Spaniards, by a regard for precedent. The Americans, though largely of the same blood, have felt no such restraint, and acquired no such habit of conformity. On the contrary, they have plunged to the other extreme, for the conditions of life in their new country have put a high value upon the precisely opposite qualities of curiosity and daring, and so they have acquired that character of restlessness, that impatience of forms, that disdain of the dead hand which now broadly marks them. From the first, says a recent literary historian, they have been less phlegmatic, less conservative than the English. There were climatic influences, it may be. There was surely a spirit of intensity everywhere that made for short effort. Thus in the arts, and thus in business, in politics, in daily intercourse, in habits of mind and speech. The American is not, in truth, lacking in a capacity for discipline. He has it highly developed. He submits to leadership readily, and even to tyranny. But by a curious twist, it is not the leadership that is old and decorous that fetches him, but the leadership that is new and extravagant. He will resist dictation out of the past, but he will follow a new messiah with almost Russian willingness and into the wildest vagaries of economics, religion, morals, and speech. A new fallacy in politics spreads faster in the United States than anywhere else on earth, and so does a new fashion in hats, or a new revelation of God, or a new means of killing time, or a new metaphor or piece of slang. Thus the American, on his linguistic side, likes to make his language as he goes along, and not all the hard work of his grammar teachers can hold the business back. A novelty loses nothing by the fact that it is a novelty. It rather gains something, and particularly if it meet the national fancy for the terse, the vivid, and above all the bold and imaginative. The characteristic American habit of reducing complex concepts to the starkest abbreviations was already noticeable in colonial times, and such highly typical Americanisms as OK, NG, and PDQ have been traced back to the first days of the Republic. Nor are the influences that shaped these early tendencies invisible today, for the country is still in process of growth, and no settled social order has yet descended upon it. Institution-making is still going on, and so is language-making. In so modest an operation as that which has evolved bunco from buncombe and bunk from bunco, there is evidence of a phenomenon which the philologist recognizes as belonging to the most primitive and lusty stages of speech. The American Vulgate is not only constantly making new words, it is also deducing roots from them, and so giving proof, as Professor sayce says, that the creative powers of language are even now not extinct. But of more importance than its sheer inventions, if only because much more numerous, are its extensions of the vocabulary, both absolutely and in ready workableness, by the devices of rhetoric. The American, from the beginning, has been the most ardent of recorded rhetoricians. His politics bristles with pungent epithets. His whole history has been bedizened with tall talk. His fundamental institutions rest as much upon brilliant phrases as upon logical ideas, and in small things, as in large, he exercises continually an incomparable capacity for projecting hidden and often fantastic relationships into arresting parts of speech. Such a term as rubberneck is almost a complete treatise on American psychology. It reveals the national habit of mind more clearly than any labored inquiry could ever reveal it. It has in it precisely the boldness and disdain of ordered forms that are so characteristically American, and it has, too, the grotesque humor of the country, and the delight in devastating opprobriums, and the acute feeling for the succinct and savory. The same qualities are in roughhouse, water wagon, near silk, has-been, lame duck, and a thousand other such racy substantives, and in all the great stock of native verbs and adjectives. There is indeed but a shadowy boundary in these new coinages between the various parts of speech. Corral, borrowed from the Spanish, immediately becomes a verb and the father of an adjective. Bust, carved out of burst, erects itself into a noun. Bum, coming by way of an earlier bummer from the German bummler, becomes noun, adjective, verb, and adverb. Verbs are fashioned out of substantives by the simple process of prefixing the preposition, to engineer, to chink, to stump, to hog. Others grow out of an intermediate adjective, as to boom. Others are made by torturing nouns with harsh affixes, as to burglarize and to itemize, or by groping for the root, as to resurrect. Yet others are changed from intransitive to transitive. A sleeping car sleeps thirty passengers. So with the adjectives. They are made of substantives unchanged, codfish, jitney, or by bold combinations, down and out, upstate, flat-footed, or by shading down suffixes to a barbaric simplicity scary, classy, tasty, or by working over adverbs until they tremble on the brink between adverb and adjective. Right and near are examples. All of these processes, of course, are also to be observed in the English of England. In the days of its great Elizabethan growth, they were in the lustiest possible being. They are indeed common to all languages. They keep language alive. But if you will put the English of today beside the American of today, you will see at once how much more forcibly they are in operation in the latter than in the former. English has been arrested in its growth by its purists and grammarians. It shows no living change in structure and syntax since the days of Anne, and very little modification in either pronunciation or vocabulary. Its tendency is to conserve that which is established, to say the new thing as nearly as possible in the old way to combat all that expansive gusto which made for its pliancy and resilience in the days of Shakespeare. In place of the old loose-footedness, there is set up a preciosity which, in one direction, takes the form of unyielding affectations in the spoken language, and in another form shows itself in the heavy Johnsonese of current English writing, the jargon denounced by Sir Arthur Quiller Couch in his Cambridge lectures. This infirmity of speech... Quiller couch finds in parliamentary debates and in the newspapers. It has become the medium through which boards of government, county councils, syndicates, committees, commercial firms express the processes as well as the conclusions of their thought, and so voice the reason of their being. Distinct from journalese, the two yet overlap and have a knack of assimilating each other's vices. American, despite the gallant efforts of the professors, has so far escaped any such suffocating formalization. We, too, have our occasional practitioners of the authentic English jargon. In the late Grover Cleveland we produced an acknowledged master of it. But in the main, our faults in writing lie in precisely the opposite direction. That is to say, we incline toward a directness of statement which, at its greatest, lacks restraint and urbanity altogether, and toward a hospitality which often admits novelties for the mere sake of their novelty and is quite uncritical of the difference between a genuine improvement in succinctness and clarity and mere extravagant raciness. The tendency, says one English observer, is to consider the speech of any man, as any man himself, as good as any other. All beauty and distinction, says another, are ruthlessly sacrificed to force. Moreover, this strong revolt against conventional bonds is by no means confined to the folk speech nor even to the loose conversational English of the upper classes. It also gets into more studied discourse, both spoken and written. I glance through the speeches of Dr. Woodrow Wilson, surely a purist if we have one at all, and find in a few moments half a dozen locutions that an Englishman in like position would never dream of using. Among them, we must get a move on. Hog as a verb, gumshoe as an adjective with verbal overtones. Honorary, in place of ordinary, and that is going some. From the earliest days, indeed, English critics have found this gypsy tendency in our most careful writing. They denounced it in Marshall, Cooper, Mark Twain, Poe, Lossing, Lowell, and Holmes, and even in Hawthorne and Thoreau. And it was no less academic a work than W.C. Brownell's French Traits, which brought forth in the London Literary Journal the dictum that, The language most depressing to the cultured Englishman is the language of the cultured American. Even educated American English, agrees the chief of modern English grammarians, is now almost entirely independent of British influence and differs from it considerably, though as yet not enough to make the two dialects, American English and British English, mutually unintelligible. American thus shows its character in a constant experimentation, a wide hospitality to novelty, a study reaching out for new and vivid forms. No other tongue of modern times admits foreign words and phrases more readily. None is more careless of precedence. None shows a greater fecundity and originality of fancy. It is producing new words every day, by trope, by agglutination, by the shutting of inflections, by the merging of parts of speech, and by sheer brilliance of imagination. It is full of what Bret Hart called the sabre-cuts of Saxon. It meets Montaigne's ideal, of a succulent and nervous speech, short and compact, not as much delicated and combed out as vehement and brusque, rather arbitrary than monotonous, not pedantic but soldierly, as Suetonius called Caesar's Latin. One pictures the common materials of English dumped into a pot, exotic flavorings added, and the bubblings assiduously and expectantly skimmed, what is old and respected is already in decay the moment it comes into contact with what is new and vivid. Let American confront a novel problem alongside English, and immediately its superior imaginativeness and resourcefulness become obvious. Movie is better than cinema. It is not only better American, it is better English. Billboard is better than hoarding. Office holder is more honest, more picturesque, more thoroughly Anglo Saxon than public servant. Stemwinder somehow has more life in it, more fancy and vividness, than the literal keyless watch. Turn to the terminology of railroading, itself, by the way, an Americanism. Its creation fell upon the two peoples equally, but they tackled the job independently. The English, seeking a figure to denominate the wedge-shaped fender in front of a locomotive, called it a plow. The Americans, characteristically, gave it the far more pungent name of cowcatcher, so with the casting where two rails join. The English called it a crossing plate. The Americans, more responsive to the suggestion in its shape, called it a frog. This boldness of conceit, of course, makes for vulgarity. Unrestrained by any critical sense, and the critical sense of the professors counts for little, for they cry wolf too often, it flowers in such barbaric inventions as tasty, all right, no account, pants, go-aheaditiveness, Tony, semi-occasional, to fellowship, and to doxologize. Let it be admitted, American is not infrequently vulgar. The Americans, too, are vulgar. Bayard Taylor called them Anglo-Saxons relapsed into semi-barbarism. America itself is unutterably vulgar. But vulgarity, after all, means no more than a yielding to natural impulses in the face of conventional inhibitions and that yielding to natural impulses is at the heart of all healthy language-making. The history of English, like the history of American and every other living tongue, is a history of vulgarisms that, by their accurate meeting of real needs, have forced their way into sound usage, and even into the lifeless catalogues of the grammarians. The colonial pedants denounced to advocate as bitterly as they ever denounced to compromit or to hapify, and all the English authorities gave them aid. But it forced itself into the American language despite them, and today it is even accepted as English and has got into the Oxford Dictionary. To donate, so late as 1870, was dismissed by Richard Grant White as ignorant and abominable, and to this day the English will have none of it. But there is not an American dictionary that doesn't accept it, and surely no American writer would hesitate to use it. Footnote. Despite this fact, an academic and ineffective opposition to it still goes on. On the style sheet of the Century magazine, it is listed among the words and phrases to be avoided. It was prohibited by the famous Index Expurgatorius prepared by William Cullen Bryant for the New York Evening Post, and his prohibition is still theoretically in force, but the word is now actually permitted by the Post. The Chicago Daily News style book, dated July 1st, 1908, also bans it. End of footnote. Reliable, gubernatorial, standpoint, and scientist have survived opposition of equal ferocity. The last named was coined by William Hewell, an Englishman, in 1840, but was first adopted in America. Despite the fact that Fitz-Edward Hall and other eminent philologists used it and defended it, it aroused almost incredible opposition in England. So recently as 1890, it was denounced by the London Daily News as an ignoble Americanism. And according to William Archer, it was finally accepted by the English only at the point of the bayonet. Footnote. Scientist is now in the Oxford Dictionary. So are reliable, standpoint, and gubernatorial. But the Century magazine still bans standpoint, and the Evening Post, at least in theory, bans both standpoint and reliable. The Chicago Daily News accepts standpoint, but bans reliable and gubernatorial. All of these words, of course, are now quite as good as ox or and. End of footnote. The purist performs a useful office in enforcing a certain logical regularity upon the process, and in our own case, The omnipresent example of the greater conservatism of the English corrects our native tendency to go too fast. But the process itself is as inexorable in its workings as the procession of the equinoxes. And if we yield to it more eagerly than the English, it is only a proof, perhaps, that the future of what was once the Anglo-Saxon tongue lies on this side of the water. The story of English grammar, says Morrison, is a story of simplification, of dispensing with grammatical forms, and of the most copious and persistent enlargement of vocabulary and mutation of idiom ever recorded, perhaps, by descriptive philology. English now has the brakes on, but American continues to leap in the dark, and the prodigality of its movement is all the indication that is needed of its intrinsic health, its capacity to meet the ever-changing needs of a restless and iconoclastic people, constantly fluent in racial composition and disdainful of hampering traditions. Language, says Sace, is no artificial product, contained in books and dictionaries, and governed by the strict rules of impersonal grammarians. It is the living expression of the mind and spirit of a people, ever-changing and shifting, whose sole standard of correctness is custom and the common usage of the community. The first lesson to be learned is that there is no intrinsic right or wrong in the use of language, no fixed rules such as are the delight of the teacher of Latin prose. What is right now will be wrong hereafter. What language rejected yesterday, she accepts today. End of chapter one, part five.